Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get tickets and merch and other cool ways to support the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis. I didn't get caught fucking Marty Heller and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. I really ought to see a Romer film and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. I am, unfortunately, Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. I'd fuck a woodpile if there's a chance there was a snake in it. And you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. And returning from our Shogun Assassin and Lavender Hill Mob episodes earlier in 2020, we have special guest Matt Clark on the episode to discuss our movie for today. Matt, welcome back. Hey, thanks very much. <clears throat> My name's Matt. Uh, I'm on Twitter at the MPLS Matt. And I'm not sure if this sounds kind of bleak or it's just the way you guys tell it. <laughs> Excellent. Nice. You, you're re- ready for that bit. Uh, as you might have already guessed from the title and uh, structure of this episode, we are going to be talking about 1975's Night Moves. Uh, but I will let Aaron take that away. Yes, uh, Night Moves, directed by Arthur Penn. Yes, 1975 film um, stars Gene Hackman as Harry Mosby. He is a private investigator who's kind of, um, I don't know, overly inquisitive nature, let's say, has uh, driven a rift uh, with a lot of people in his life, but mainly his relationship with his wife, Ellen, who is played by Susan Clark, um, who has begun to have an affair. Uh, Mosby is hired by former actress Arlene Iverson, played by Janet Ward, to track down her young daughter, Deli Grassner, played by Melanie Griffith here. Um, this takes him to a number of different locations, primarily uh, New Mexico. He meets a, a stuntman there named Quentin, played by James Woods. Uh, it also takes him to the Florida Keys, where he finds uh, Deli living with her stepfather, Tom Iverson, played by John, John Crawford, uh, and he, he lives there with his girlfriend, Paula, played by Jennifer Warren. Um, finding Deli, however, doesn't offer the simple resolution that Mosby wants, um, as he stumbles onto kind of a, a slightly larger conspiracy um, that his old school uh, investigative uh, nature is unable to make sense of. Um, at the time, it was uh, not a, a, an especially, uh, it was actually commercial, uh, commercially unsuccessful, uh, kind of as time has gone on, it's come to be uh, recognized as a, a kind of a masterpiece or at least a very good uh, example of kind of modern noir. Um, Matt, uh, my understanding is you've uh, seen the film a few times before. You like the film, I guess, what, uh, as the guest here, what, uh, what are your thoughts? Sure. Yeah. So I must have seen Night Moves for the first time only uh, three years ago or something like that. I want to say um, I was getting more into um, just kind of pursuing 70s new American cinema. And this is a movie that was um, really championed by the Pure Cinema podcast. If you've ever heard those guys, um, it's very much in their wheelhouse, I want to say. Um, but yeah, I um, I do like the movie quite a bit. Um, I'm uh, 
weirdly not the biggest noir fan. I mean, I, I appreciate noir, but I am a massive neo-noir fan. <laughs> and I am not entirely sure what that says about me. Um, but yeah, I uh, this feels less of a reinvention of noir um, in the same way as some other 70s movies like The Long Goodbye or The Conversation might be. It feels very kind of classically uh, Chandler esque i would say in a lot of ways at least as far as the plot beats go but i um really fell in love with the characters um yeah hackman's mosby um paula i think is a really fascinating character and i think they have really great dialogue so that really hooked me into the movie and i think i've only just grown in my appreciation for it as i revisited it as well Nice. Well, as the only person with uh, prior experience with the movie, uh, really looking forward to hearing how it went down this time. Um, and yeah, uh, I I personally really enjoyed this movie because, um, you know, having I, I guess the only thing that I knew about it was the trailer and Harry's review on Letterboxd as he I hadn't seen yours, Matt, uh, prior to watching this movie. But um, Harry's sort of opinion. Uh, sorry, this is Harry Mackin I'm speaking of uh, his opinion of the movie was a little bit more negative from his very first watching. So I had an interesting lens going in. I maybe poisoned myself on that, but I think I enjoyed it more than that review would have led me to believe I would. Um, I really like how specifically Floridian it is. Uh, we the only movie we've covered so far um, where we also talked about that setting was uh, the uh, Key Largo, of course, in our most recent episode um, and how it's very specifically like you know, the, the house is being destroyed as the plot goes on and it gets more sorted. Um, and it's, you know, the external shots are really creatively put together to sort of exemplify the, the tempest coming through, uh, in this movie, it's a lot more tame, a lot more subtle, I think, but a lot more effective in ways. Um, I'm just thinking of like the backgrounds where there's, uh, you know, the ebb and flow of the ocean and it's set against a really tense scene with this ebb and flow of emotion. You know, I, I just really enjoyed that, um, metatextual, like, playing in the background type thing. It reminded me of, you know, the better parts of Kurosawa movies visually, uh, how there's always something going on and it's always like thematically feeling, I guess it's a very small brain take, but, but it is mine. Um, I sort of like, there's this underscoring of, um, you know, uncertainty about like, uh, the, um, I guess about life and the fear of death throughout the movie, uh, which, you know, is not unique to this movie. It's kind of a noir thing, but it's the way that it's put in this movie is like sad and almost mean at times, which I think was just a combination that worked for me. Um, I think there's a bit of a call of the void vibe going on in this here movie. Um, you know, how we perceive death, how we're confronted with it. Every character has some form of reaction to the concept of death, you know, whether it's waking up in a sweat or somebody remembering like the first time that they saw death on TV with, you know, the, one of the Kennedy shootings, um, it's just really like there's a lot buried under there that I, I would like to get into in our conversation. And Delhi, I think, to go back to Matt's point about the characters, Delhi is an interesting vector uh, into that point as somebody who always wants everything to change no matter what. Um, and yet, you know, has not really conceptualized death or, you know, her own mortality and isn't really given the chance to do that. Um, I guess I'm getting too deep on that specific point for, you know, intros. But um, there's like that tantalizing futility of that uncertainty. Uh, and, you know, in spite of that, everybody's always like oversharing about themselves in like almost david lynchian way of like just getting way too specific about their their lives and their experiences and their outlooks um way more than you would expect to give or that you pro should probably give to a detective who's you know looking to work against you sort of thing uh and there's just that obsession that um that uh you know tantalizing appeal of 
of making your life meaningful to someone else in a moment, I guess, uh, that happens. Like, I think it's this movie's lifeblood, whether it's Harry and, um, Ellen, you know, working out the kinks in their marriage, or if it's Harry and Paula, uh, having their, you know, interpersonal, their whole, you know, complicated deal. Um, it does, of course, as I think Harry will probably bring up and the rest of us are definitely going to uh, rip into a little bit. It has a problem with women, whether or not that's attributed to the noir form or specifically this movie in its, uh, you know, sort of like more pointed misogyny. I think we'll definitely have that as a discussion point, but it's worth pointing out that none of that really uh None of that. I don't know if I don't want to say that it didn't affect my viewing experience. I definitely like it's definitely there, whether or not it uh, like drags it down too far for me to appreciate the movie. I guess we'll see after this episode. But um, uh, let's see. Um, I don't have a cute way to outro this specific segment, but I do need to toss to Cody. So I'm just going to end on an uh, full throated uh, fuck James Woods. Cody. Man, I was wondering when, uh, wondering when the first one was going to drop. Uh, very well, eloquently put, Jason. Thank you for that. Um, but yeah, this is the uh, the second night moves I've seen after Kelly Reichardt's night moves, um, and uh, I, I quite well, I quite like both of them. I quite like this one, uh, the one we're talking about today. Uh, procedurally, there were some stretches that did make me think of films uh, like The Long Goodbye, even though I think sensibility wise, you know, those two pictures are, are pretty different. But that's that's kind of my small brain take is that I still have uh, a lot to learn about noir um this this movie does uh, you know it does a version of the classic sort of detective needs to solve the case to you know feel achievement or to feel self-actualization um it, it one of the big things for me uh while watching and it kind of ties back into what its trial and theme fits into but this movie um sort of what jason was talking about with the the natural elements it's doing a lot uh, of things that i love with its environment and its natural borders our story takes place basically on on two different coasts um those are kind of the the, the main the scenes mainly take place uh on the West coast and then in Florida. And then one of those areas is characterized heavily by its placement on the water. Um, like Jason said, we see a lot of that kind of uh, ebbing and flowing in the background. Uh, and I legitimately love when a movie kind of makes you feel trapped without explicitly telling you you're trapped. Um, and I mean, night moves comments on that in other ways too, but you look in the background of these shots and there's, there's water or there's dry New Mexico desert. Um, there are places to go, but there aren't really like escapes. Um, and it's this sort of dangling reminder that running away is in fact futile and we're all doomed to be swallowed up by the water eventually right and it's this idea that nothing good sticks for too long and life is really just a series of bad choices and, and tragedies there's that exchange where paul is like where were you when kennedy got shot and harry mosby's like which kennedy and i thought to myself well someone could ask me how i coped with any of the like market crashes or environmental catastrophes or like global pandemics that have taken place in my lifetime uh and i'd be like well you're asking like could you specify the instance that you want my opinion on um because it's it's uh, it's never ending and all that's just kind of it's in the background of this movie um but as like context for like as far as setting the stage for this action and this story i couldn't help but latch onto it um some of the stuff in this movie's foreground felt a little weird and I, 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 this is all stuff that we'll inevitably talk on and that's already been talked about um the 16 year old character um interesting decision and I, I don't know the more i watched the more more it felt clear to me that actually the movie could function or be restructured it, uh, to be fine kind of without that element um 
Mosby's arc being hampered somewhat by the movie's need for him to kind of thwart, quote unquote, thwart several women and the advances of those women. Um, it, it wasn't enough for me to become disinterested with his character, uh, Mosby's character or the movie in general, but it was just, I don't know, um, thinking of, of things that felt needless to me while watching, um, you know, armchair director, all that good stuff that we always do. Um, it is a pretty bleak movie and I don't always go for, for bleak, um, movies, hateful movies, but overall I, I like how this one hit me. Um, I watched this movie a few days ago at the trial on and kind of more than I expected. I've thought back on a bunch of its shots. Uh, the POV shot of Mosby in his car driving away after leaving Delhi with her mother. Uh, the couple of shots of, um, I think it's Joey in the airplane at the end. Um, whenever James Woods was getting the shit kicked out of him, that was a real thrill. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to like here. Maybe some stuff to not like, um, but overall, I think it'll be really fun to talk about. Um, right now though, I, I'm concerned about our Harry, he's he's upstairs. Last I checked, watching football. Um, maybe he wants to watch that downstairs. Um, you don't need to watch it on that potato, buddy. We've got we've got flat screen TVs now. Harry, you you okay? No, I, I'm fine, Cody. I'm going to stay up here. Um, thanks for that intro. Okay. Um, Jason brought up my review. Uh, I did watch this in quarantine for the first time. It hit me kind of weird at that point. Um, I, I enjoyed it considerably more this time around than I did last time. I think that what I had interpreted as misogynistic, which I still find this movie to be relatively misogynistic, but it's also uh, roundly misanthropic in a way that does not necessarily redeem uh, its misogyny but at least sort of rounds it out in in a sort of fairness sense if that makes sense uh this is a much more angry and hateful movie than i remembered it being it's a it's a movie that's really um mad at the sort of cosmic futility of things but it's also just as mad at our need to um to make meaning uh it's sort of a it's a it's a movie that is um at odds with its own need for uh, existential satisfaction, right? I think that um, Harry Mosby as a character is a really fascinating one in a way that didn't quite hit me the first time. But um, the movie is quite critical of him, even as it is sympathetic toward him. I think casting Gene Hackman in that way is a really smart play because Gene Hackman is such a charismatic, such a sympathetic actor that um, maybe that worked against him the first time I saw this movie and that I thought I was supposed to very roundly sympathize with Harry Mosby as a character when I do not think that's the case at all at this point. I think that this movie is is making the point that um, we are all a little bit Harry Mosby in the sense of what we're trying to achieve, but it's also angry at what we become in the attempt and in um, what what we end up doing with ourselves in those attempts. Um, as uh, Paula says at one point, we ask the wrong questions, right? Um, I found the, uh, I still think the writing is a little bit overwritten at times. I think sometimes it explicitly lays out its point a little bit too much. Um, there are three or four separate instances where somebody says like, what do you think you're going to solve something, Harry? And it's like, we didn't, I didn't need that. Uh, that's like very explicitly making the subtext text in a way that doesn't really work for me. Um, but I really like Jason's reading that that happens because all of these characters are over explainers. Um, I think that works really well in the sort of, again, um, interwoven sort of like tentative existentialism of this movie where like everyone needs to make a narrative out of their lives and they're all constantly trying to do that and they're working against the tide, right? Like our narratives are not actually what we say they are. We are not actually the people we want to be and there are answers and the answers are obvious. They're just not the answers we want, which is why we ask the wrong questions, right? It's like like everybody said, it's it's a very bleak movie. Um, I think especially for its time period, that's a very important thing. It's bleakness um, and uh 
yeah, I, I think that it does that in some really poignant ways. Um, the central metaphor with uh, the night moves themselves with chess was like unbelievably affecting to me this time around. I think that uh, the big conversation that Harry has with Paula, where he explains the chess moves, we can get into that a little bit, but that was like very affecting to me. Um, I really like the ways in which this movie plays with the form of noir, not by sort of like constructing a mystery that our hero can't solve because he's not competent, but just because it's almost beneath him. Um, it's, it's interesting that like in, at least to my mind, and maybe we can read this differently, but like this, mystery it winds up being sort of a series of almost contrivances slash mistakes slash rash reactions to things um and that creates sort of a a thread that is um like specifically difficult for someone who is who is looking for logic to follow right and like when you set that against the um the bleak existentialism of this movie and the idea that um that like we know the answers, but the answers aren't what we want or uh, the narratives we, we already know are not correct. Right. Um, it's, it's like Harry Mosby when he finds his dad and he, he refuses to go talk to his dad because he knows like he knows what it is and he knows that it's something that he doesn't want answered. Right. That's sort of one of the other big reveals of this movie. But I, I think that juxtaposing that, um, that sense of mystery and mysteries that aren't really mysteries and mysteries that are sort of more a series of contrivances and mistakes and um, even sort of like bad timing with this sense of like trying to make something that isn't a mystery into a mystery so that you have something to solve so that you can feel like you're solving something is it, it that that all works really well. So I guess what I'm saying is that like, I don't know, I really, I enjoy this movie. I think it's a great movie more than I enjoy it, I guess. I still have issues with the way that it treats particularly feminine sexuality. Um, and I, maybe we can talk about that, but I, I think it, it would be, um, it, it would be unfair of me to say that I don't think this movie is very good because I think it really accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. Um, but now I need to uh, question Aaron about something that I'm not totally sure about, but I, I think that I, I maybe if I brace him, I'll be able to get something out of him. So Aaron, where were you on the night of the 11th? Harry, do you think you can? Yeah, it's it's really, really messed up that the main character's name is Harry. I'm just going to call him Mosby, I think. Uh, is a, is I think a that's favor fair. to, yeah. to Mac. And Thank here. you. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I was uh, watching this film, uh, which I have not I had not seen before. I think that that um, even on a, even on a first watch, I think I kind of understand where uh, Harry and Matt are, are coming from with, you know, I, I think this movie feels like one that that would feel good to go back to. And you can kind of appreciate over the course of more time. Um, you know, I, I think that I'm I'm probably pretty in line with what Matt said earlier about preferring neo-noir uh, to noir. I often kind of dig the um, the aesthetic of noir in a very kind of cozy, lazy, you know, kind of vibey way. Um, but that aesthetic often clashes with the the actual experience of watching a lot of those movies. Like, they, they you know, there's a lot going on in those films. It's more than just like uh, kind of soft jazz and smoky rooms. I often like soft jazz and smoky rooms. Uh, maybe that's me just being an idiot. Um, but but I, I do, uh, on the other hand, kind of really dig a film um, that, that takes aim at, you know, where it comes from, that plays around with its influences. Um, I think that the, the character of Mosby here specifically um, feels like kind of a natural endpoint of, uh, you know, classic noir protagonist, right? Um, 
when I think of like a, a lot of characters, you know, they, they mention um, specifically Sam Spade, Maltese Falcon uh, in this film, characters like that, that kind of are emblematic of, of noir protagonists. Um, they feel like characters who are often um, outside of typical society, right? Who, who only interact with typical society when they get drawn in by a case they're working on. Most of these people don't have spouses. They, they don't have partners. They, they maybe have a friend or two that they, they talk to, you know, when they're, when they're researching the case, but for the most part, they're, they're kind of completely separate from everyday life. Right. Um, and this movie often feels like with the character of Mosby, what happens when this, this character actually, uh, is married and has relationships and friendships and how do these, extremely actually very weird uh, impulses um, that kind of tie into their their career uh, impact just being a normal person, right? I think a lot of that's pretty interesting. Um, this film as kind of noir in the 1970s is also, uh, you know, in an interesting spot. Um, I don't think any of us are, are big fans of uh, Polanski himself, but uh, I think this movie kind of has to be referenced alongside something like Chinatown uh, from one year prior in 74. Um, I also think that you know, if you're to look at like Wikipedia or any writing about this film, uh, the same kinds of, uh, uh, you know, movements in American society are brought up again and again. Uh, you know, Watergate specifically is the one at Wikipedia. There's a line about Watergate, uh, but also Vietnam, the Korean War, right? Uh, I, I think that this movie has some very interesting things to say about um, American society in decay, kind of in the same manner that something like Last Picture Show and Targets did. Um, lastly, uh, I also think that this is one in a series of, of pretty great selections, uh, by the Trilon, um, in regard to programming. I think this Florida Noir, uh, you know, set of films is, is very good, right? Night Moves, we talked about Key Largo. I'm very pumped to talk about Spring Breakers. Um, I think that there is something interesting being done here and in those other films, um, about Florida specifically, uh, you know, as a, a part of America that, that is distinctly American, but is like so close to not being America and is often, you know, kind of big square quotes, uh, scare quotes here, like invaded by un-American uh, influences, right? Um, Cuba from Key Largo, uh, Yucatan in this film. Um, it's, it's, you know, Florida is like an interesting place, like a wild place, like I had family members in Florida. Um, and this, this film feels like it nails that aspect in a very interesting way and like something about the environment and geography and the, just the place of Florida kind of clashing up against noir and, and neo-noir and all these other genres. Um, I dig it. So really love this movie. I knew that was like 19 different points. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this um, on a first watch. So 19 and all of them. Good. Um, I want to just echo the concept of like that. It is leveraging the Florida uh, location in, I think a more interesting way than our previous movies in this series. Um, but I can let that be a discussion point for later, but first I want to start off with Matt, uh, Aaron, one of your points from later on, uh, in your thoughts was that this movie is like doing things with the neo, like entering itself into the neo-noir mode, um, with, you know, interesting tech, uh, Matt, as somebody who's quote unquote obsessed with neo-noir, um, what do you think that night moves is doing generally, uh, that other neo-noirs don't, or maybe that it, you know, has it's positioned to do that other neo-noirs that you've seen haven't. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that, you know, um, in, 
in the 70s and in the American film at the time, you know, you have a lot of kind of resurgence of like uh, reinterpretation and rehabilitation of the of the genre. I mean, in a way, they're kind of taking their cues from the French New Wave in that, even though it's funny that there's an Eric Romer dig in this particular movie. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, you know, this isn't... <clears throat> Like I say, this isn't a, like a bold reinvention in the way that like, you know, the conversation, I think, is like a real, you know, kind of a, a transformation of the, the noir tropes. And then, you know, um, you know, Chinatown was brought up. And um, the other thing I'm thinking of is like the Bob Mitchum uh, Chandler reinterpretations that happened in the 70s, too, that are more like classical. Like, let's let's actually do a like a, a period piece. Right. And this is, you know, we have Mosby as this sort of man out of time, you know, uh, not too dissimilar from um, Elliot Gould's Marlowe, um, but he's, <laughs> you know, it, we're not exactly championing him either. It's like he's he's sort of interacting in the world that he's at odds with. He seems to get along with other guys who are um kind of american archetypes right like he's a former professional football player right and then he finds this community of stuntmen and mechanics and you know these kind of like rough and tumble dudes um but in no way is is a pen or sharp um like endorsing these guys or championing them really like they're 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 you know, futility and pessimism is such a huge undercurrent for the whole film that, you know, yeah, these guys are at odds with the world, but we're not saying like, yeah. And, you know, back when men were men, that was better. They're like, no, Mm -hmm. these guys are clods. Like they're, they're not good at criminal enterprises. They're not good at personal relationships. Like they're compulsive and they're doing these things, but in no way are we saying, yeah, this is awesome. We love these guys. You know, they're just, yeah. Um, yeah, kind of bouncing around in the world, as is everybody. I mean, it, it it is it is it really is like such a deeply bleak film, and um and then you know the finale is, <laughs> you know, very very uh kind of depressing. Um, you know, we brought up the the bit where Paula asks him about the Kennedy assassinations, and yeah, and he says which ones, but that that whole like interchange is such a kind of good illustration of like, yeah, American society and decay. Cause he's, you know, he mentions when, um, you know, president Kennedy was shot, he was on his way to a football game. It was still when he was a professional football player. And then by the time that Bobby Kennedy gets assassinated, he's waiting outside a CD hotel on a divorce case, like doing his kind of like, you know, scum bum detective work. Like he's in decline as well. You know, that, the, I, I yes, very good points. I think I will. Uh, I, I bet. I, I bet Harry wants to to add some stuff to this, so I, I think I'll try and set him up pretty well. Uh, in that, I, I great points about the. Um, it's not like nostalgia, right? But it's like a, a commentary on um, who these characters uh, were and who I guess who they were portrayed as uh, in, in film as well, but also just kind of American history uh, in the past. I think that the 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 character of of Mosby specifically is is kind of the the key to a lot of that um and that i was kind of i thought it was a little strange going through uh like letterbox and just kind of reading reviews I, a lot of people said that they they felt that um 
uh, Mosby's relationship with his wife, Ellen, was like kind of something that was touched upon, but maybe not fleshed out that much, um, as well as some of the other people around him. I, I, I very much disagree with that. I think that like that is like very much the 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 thing of this movie um, and that, you know, he, Mosby, sorry, not Harry, not you, Harry, uh, but Mosby is a person who is obsessed with the past in a lot of ways, right? Um, and the reason that he he fails so much is because he is kind of a, a classic character from the past who has no place in kind of the, the modern American society. Um, you know, he, he's obsessed with going over like old chess moves, right? Um, I, I think there's maybe something uh, with with like the black and white color uh, of chess, right? Uh, where he, he kind of likes to see things in that manner. Um, and I think maybe if you want to, maybe this is a little head ass, but if you want to compare that to like the black and white aesthetic of noir films, I think maybe there's something there as well, right? He likes watching old football Yo. recordings. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I came prepared, bro. Uh, he, he likes watching old football recordings uh, and kind of just reminiscing about uh, his time back then. Um, he also, you know, he, he is representative. Again, there's the reference to, to Sam Spade, the Maltese Falcon. Um, he is he is like yearning for this this classic period. Um, but also he is a character who is unaware uh, that that he is somewhat representative of it and just doesn't fit in. Like it, that feels very, I didn't write a, a letterbox like one line review for this. Uh, but, but I wanted to say that he is like the most, uh, like Mr. Jones ass, uh, person in all of cinema, like the, the Bob Dylan song, <laughs> uh, ballad of a thin man. Yes. He, like, he is that dude. Like he just wanders into 100%. rooms, doesn't know what's going on. And he just like feels kind of awkward and then like stumbles out. Um, Harry, what's up? No, that that's a really great point. Um, a lot to cover here. So I, I guess I'm becoming even more a fan of this movie as we talk, just because there's so much to do, but both Matt and Aaron made really good points about Mosby. Um, I just want to add that like Mosby is also a man child, right? Like a hundred percent. He's a, he's a former football player who is still obsessed with his past career in football. And like being a detective is, is kind of clearly a substitute for that. It's like another game that he can play that he can solve. I mean, here's a guy who, when he's out on stakeouts, he plays chess with himself because he's so obsessed with chess. And the, the chess metaphor that works so well for me is that eventually he reveals to Paula that he's actually going over old famous chess moves um, that didn't end the way that he thought that they should or the way that they should have and thinking about and regretting the fact that they didn't go that way and, and saying like, look, he, he, he could have seen it a, a different way. He just missed this move. He could have made these three little night moves that could have changed everything. And he talks about how he regrets that even though he hadn't been born yet, which leads Paul to say, that's no excuse. That's maybe my favorite line in the entire movie. Um, and there are a lot of really good lines in this movie, but, um, yes, Aaron, to your point and Matt, I, guess to your point as well like i really like that you brought up marlo from the long goodbye because this is like an inverse marlo right like i think if long goodbye is a movie about the sort of tragedy of losing someone like marlo to the world like the fact that we have to say the long goodbye to a character of his stature and of his um spirit then this is a movie that is actually more interesting in deconstructing the idea that that spirit ever existed in the first place um aaron the way that you characterize um Mosby is really good in the Mr. Jones sense. We're like, this is a, this is a guy who his sort of personal obsessions and his obsession with the past and regret, it has like largely alienated him from society and from being able to live a normal life, right? Like he has a strained relationship with his wife that is kind of his fault because his personality makes him so that he can't take a job at an agency. He has to take these sort of like, um, creeper, 
uh, private eye jobs because that's how he has to see himself because that's the sort of game that he wants to be playing. And those obsessions drive his whole sort of like personality. This is like very clearly a commentary on like what happens when we subject the the classic noir protagonist the black and white noir protagonist and we put him in color right and like all of a sudden we see all these new aspects of him and it's really interesting because like i i've always wondered about if hackman was good casting for this but like he has so much in common with his character in the conversation uh in this movie that it makes a lot of sense but like it is a it is fascinating that like and and maybe in a really good poignant way that like Harry Mosby is supposed to be 40 in this movie and I don't know about you guys but Hackman looks older than 40 to me in this yeah, movie yeah, and he, he, was, he also he was 45 just for the record like he wasn't that much older but he looks haggard <laughs> right and like and also like, everybody in, in, in a way does <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point, too. Paula is such an unconventional, like, uh, femme fatale, but she's so great in it. Um, and, and also, like, maybe the saddest movie character ever, but we can we can get to that. Um, but uh, also, like, it, it's tough to buy that Gene Hackman was ever a football player, right? Like, I to me, it's like Harry Mosby does not look like a man who used to be a football player, and that really works for me. Um, and I've made too many points already, and I see a lot of hands, but like, also, I think it, it's super pointed and super important that Harry has this weird kinship with all of these stunt people who are similarly on the margins, but similarly represent old American archetypes, like you noted, Matt, and especially the fact that at the end, it turns out that the one guy that he had the closest kinship with that he said, you know, we should have reunions and they, they were going to take in a football game together and eventually did right. Classically, uh, Joey Ziegler, he ends up being the, the, the quote unquote mastermind. Right. So like, it's, it's very much like a, the call is coming from inside the building, the same sort of like, uh, viewpoints and needs and obsessions that are driving you to be alienated from society and and from like your sort of answers quote unquote are the same thing that are driving these people to do terrible things and so like it's it's very much like a like by the end of this movie harry mosby's character is is like deeply deconstructed right and like unlike the the good long goodbye like there is nothing sort of tragic um about harry mosby's fall except that we see it represented in ourselves, right? Except that it's sympathetic because it's something that we ourselves do as well. So talk about bleak, but I'm uh, done for now. No problem. Um, yeah, that I just want to add like color to that. The, um, the, the nature of his, like the fact that he's playing, just playing games, you know, like his, uh, like Harry Mosby as, um, I think there's just an interesting contrast between like his game playing his, you know, sort of, uh, the the way that he's just sort of like wasting time and looking for problems. There's a moment near the end of the movie uh, where Paula and uh, Harry are, sorry, Mosby, Paula and Mosby are like, he's fought the uh, Jack. Is it? Um, he's fought the movie director and he's lying there on the beach and he gets up and he's like, going to the boat. Uh, Mosby is going to the boat. And Paula's like, you're really going to like, you were going to pursue this. You're going to follow it further. And it's like, you basically, you took out the bad guy. Things are done. Like you can, you can drop it now. And he sort of doesn't, there's that, you know, again, that tantalizing call of, of whatever he's, he's going for. And I think the contrast between that and his profession, like as a detective, he's supposed to be in the business of solving mysteries. Uh, and yet like he keeps unraveling things just to like ball up the yarn behind him, make worse knots and then try and undo those as well. I think it's just like an interesting way to play his motivations and the way they've written the character against what he's supposed to be, which is like the crime solving Dick, the guy who like wins out. And I know that this is like endemic to noir, but I think that just like if we're zeroing in on Gene Hackman's Harry Mosby as 
uh, character. I think that like the fact that he makes a lot of his own problems is one to, um, you know, to poke at and to prod at. And like when you poke it, it becomes a bigger uh, part of his character where it starts to explain things about why he can't just like confront his wife about, about her infidelity and like what the problems are in their marriage. He's got to play games about it and like show up at the guy's house uh, unannounced and not talk to her about it. And I don't know, it's just a way like he complicates his own problems in the way that a lot of noirs would like complicate things around him or throw him curveballs. He tends to curve the ball after he's caught it in a way. Um, I don't know. That's just adding more, I guess, to what I, what I felt like Harry was saying, but, um, like Harry, I'm not seeing a lot of hands up, so I'll hand it off to whoever had that up first. Um, I think that was me. Uh, and I'll, I'll be pretty brief. Um, also, wow. Curve the ball after he caught it. That's a fascinating sports metaphor, Daphnis that I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at, I'm, I don't have another one. So just go ahead. Yeah. Well, Hey, I mean, as they say in the movie, don't start with the sporting metaphors. I, I don't, I couldn't stand that. Um, I, I, I that, knew actually. that you were going to bring that up. <laughs> Cody, when, when I saw, when I heard that quote, I was like, holy shit, Cody is so excited for this. Uh, and I was, um, wild and in the back row by myself at the trilon. Um, but yes, uh, uh, since Matt brought it up and Harry more recently brought it up, just like uh, adding, my two cents about the sort of rough and tumble guys, the um, the people sort of on the margins, uh, embodying those sort of old American archetypes. And um, I, granted, I was kind of dense at first. I didn't realize this. Uh, this movie started at least, you know, it took place in L.A. And so people were talking about these movie gigs and um, like these like onset mechanics and stuff. And I was like, wow, this movie really does love the movies. And it's like, oh yeah, he's an L.A. idiot. Um, but like similar sort of idea with. Uh, I mean, I was fascinated by the the focus on vocation and i guess that kind of made sense when like the the place the spots that were um kind of tethered to when we go to florida i mean it, it's people similarly kind of working with their hands um they're out on the water um the sort of like fleeting nature of those vocations the idea of like getting gigs um and just i don't know i i think not to say that this movie doesn't necessarily you know love the movies it could have framed that entirely differently and it kind of chose to go that way um but yeah no, the the it was i guess i don't really have a whole lot to say other than it was it was fascinating that we sort of were were framing these people in a certain way you know most be circled the sort of these folks in their own kind of dirty, like, um, inglorious ways are the, the lifeblood of, um, their, their regions of society of America, question mark. Um, they're the sort of mouthpieces of, of those regions. And like, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's significant and maybe it's not that like, that's where Delhi like found her demise was on, on the set of a movie. Um, you know, an industry that is so intrinsic. Very to, much so. To, yeah. To like, to the mechanics of, of our world, not just, you know, on the coast, but, but all over. So uh, yeah, I don't know that that was striking to me. And I'm, I'm glad that kind of stood out to everybody else as well, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I love that you brought up that this is a movie about the movies. I'm not entirely sure what Penn is trying to say about Hollywood. Um, you know, it is to me, it is interesting that like he made his first, you know, big breakout with a remake or not a remake, but a reinterpretation of the gangster film, then he has a uh, you know a revisionist western under his belt, and then he comes out with this you know detective movie that really really feel like the plot beats really feel rooted in that kind of Chandler esque noir detective story to me anyway. When I watch the film, um, I think one thing that's like you know we brought up um, Gene Hackman in that casting. Like 
I don't know. His performance here is just, it, it's, it's, it's exceptional and it's physical. And he does like a lot of small things that are really interesting. I love that he gives this kind of like finger gun salute to people. <laughs> it makes it's me so like, good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, there's also this really brief moment before, um, you know, the kind of finale when, um, Paula dives to look for the boodle as she calls it. Um, he like has this half hearted reach out to her that he kind of misses. And then she like plunges into the water. It's just, it's like a great moment. Um, Mm -hmm. the one thing about Mosby that's really differentiates him from the kind of like, you know, classic noir protagonists and even the revisionist ones, I would say even, you know, some of the, the neo noir detective movies that were happening in the seventies is like, we, we, we brought it up, but like, we're, I mean, he's like depressed and he has an interior life that like, <laughs> you know, we, we just don't get to see often. I think, um, um, Vincent Camby, I think mentioned it in his review of the time of like, you know, we're never worried about like Marlowe and his, you know, his mental state, but like, you know, Harry Mosby, <laughs> we find ourselves, yes. even if we're not necessarily rooting for him, like, I don't know, I'm worried about Mosby. How's he doing? You know? <laughs> Um, okay, so I really like that point, Matt, because it's also super important. Again, I it's it's really helpful to me to sort of compare him to to Marlowe, maybe just because I I really like the Long Goodbye. Um, but um, like in in noir movies, especially in like even neo noir movies, so often the problems of the movie and the problems that end up sort of corrupting or destroying our our hero, they're imposed from the outside, right? Like in like in the long goodbye, it, it's sort of archetypal. Like we are losing this great thing because of the world being different from how it is now. That Night Moves is almost a perfect inversion of that, right? It's saying that like Harry Harry Mosby's problems are his. Like he is going out of his way to, if not invent them, then become obsessed with them, right? Like Jason said, he's curving the ball after he's caught it. This is a guy who is obsessed with going over old chess moves that happened before he was born because they could have been different and God wouldn't have been great if they had just been different. Right. I think that that is a, a sort of metaphor for the lives of just about everybody in this movie. Right. Like the, these are people who are full of regrets because they are not living the life that they're, that they should be in their minds that, that history sort of like intended for them to have in their own minds. These are, these are people who, you know, uh, Mosby is essentially a failed, um, football player obsessed with the fact that he didn't win the championship title when he could have um and he watch he rewatches old games and uh Paula is a is a person who um who is sort of given up on the idea of finding a real love and um even like the um the mother character whose name now escapes me apologies um she is a, a person who is who is obsessed with looking back at her film career, right? And when she used to be um, attractive to to everybody, um, it's really fascinating how like this movie is not saying that like this is a character who no longer belongs in the world because the world has changed. It's saying something a lot more along the lines of like the world created this man, and this man is ill suited for the world, right? It's it's like these these obsessions were always this way. Um, and, and this is just coming into stark relief now, but like the, the problems that are endemic to Harry Mosby are of Harry Mosby's own making. They're not something that's imposed from the outside. They're something that, that we create and that we impose upon ourselves. Right. And like, there is a great, 
it's it's interesting, right? Because like this is a movie that's so angry and so hateful in so many ways, but there's also like a deep sympathy with that. There's a there's almost a suggestion that it's like that is something that is endemic to the human experience. That is like sort of like this idea to to deny um, the the real course that our lives have taken, and instead to hold out hope or belief that we're something else, and that really like there is sort of a different answer. There's a different story and that we're supposed to be the protagonist of it's, it's kind of like Hamlet in that sense, I guess, but it's like, it's very, it's very much like that is sort of um, something that is universal, right? Like that, this endless regret and this endless um, looking back at how things could have been different if we had just made different night moves um, is, is sort of like, there's a, there's a really deep sympathy in this movie. That's very affecting um, to me. Um, I think I agree with most of what you said. I will uh, maybe disagree slightly with some characterization of the, the you know, I, I think that it is true that, that Mosby kind of brings a lot of this kind of onto himself by, by being so inquisitive in like such a weird and like socially awkward manner. Um, but, I, you know, I, I do think there are, you know, obviously there is a semi-conspiracy here. There is something for him oh, to Oh, good point, yeah. Um, I mean, like we but, want him to, right? Like we would, and and it's it's uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. it's admirable that he is, right? Because like he's the person who's not giving up, who says like, no, this, t- like she was murdered, and like it, she's worth yeah. thinking about in that way. So like, yeah. you're right. Like I mean, it's I, it's not a bad thing that he does this. It's it's kind of a bad thing that he's like this, maybe. <laughs> well, so I, I think the way that I would characterize it, specifically in in reference to a point that that Matt made um, about you know, the interiority of uh, a character like Mosby uh, coming into play in a, in a manner that, that often didn't, maybe didn't never happen, but often didn't happen uh, with, with noir films. Um, and even a lot of neo-noir, right? Often you don't really care about the past or the backstory of the main character. Um, you know, that's, that's not really the point, right? The character is coming into a situation and then trying to, to figure out what's happening there. Um, but I do think that, um, the 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 what I see is kind of the the importance of that uh, is that you know a lot of the the problems in this film and and the things that Mosby are investigating are very kind of um, they're smaller in scale they're more um, domestic let's say they're 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 much smaller disputes and like the conspiracy is something ultimately yes there is kind of this you know this ancient artifact or whatever it is that they're you know going to pick up with a, a an airplane and then sell for half a million um but that kind of feels like on the edges right that feels like over there in the corner like not the main concern um and i, I was thinking about how this film kind of compares to something like Chinatown which obviously has a very very dark um uh kind of uh family related component uh at the end of that movie um but like the when i think about like the the main thing of chinatown it's that um crime had gotten so like entrenched within american society and specifically the american government um that a, a, you know a guy with a gun and a slashed up nose has no chance of of kind of tackling it right and i think night moves is kind of the opposite where it's saying like actually a lot of these problems are are between relationships between people right um and, and much smaller uh and and 
the reason that Mosby is a character who has all of this backstory uh, is so it can comment on the, the nature of, you know, the, the conspiracy uh, at play mm-hmm. here, right? Um, he needs to have uh, this backstory and family troubles in order to um, interact with these characters and in order for his character to comment on um, the nature of uh, crime and a conspiracy that is involved with those same things. Um, that's what it feels like to me, I guess. Yeah, that's what moments like... Um that one I was talking about where they're on the pier and Paula is like almost pleading him to not go further. Cause she's like, what are you going to uncover? What are you going to find? Uh, that's what makes those so tragic and like serving of that, of, of to build Harry as a character um, is because of that. Like uh, he does not realize, I guess, um, or maybe he does. And he sort of thrives on it. I don't know. To me, it seems like he makes his own problems and he's almost, it's almost like he's acting in a manner that'll give him something to regret later, uh, even Whoa. though he knows it because that's sort of his lifestyle, um, you know, which you could write, you could talk up to writing or, you know, generally you want to keep dramatic tension in the movie and stuff. But I think specifically, and I'm glad we got so specific on Harry Mosby as like a character of neo-noir. I think specifically Harry Mosby is like the embodiment of that, of creating his own problems. And, you know, later on he will be able to play him back in his head and sort of regret what he didn't do. Um, because that's sort of what he's, he's become. He was playing football all his life until he became that's a part of it. Exactly. Like that's who he is. Um, I saw Matt's hand up first, so I'll toss to him for your thoughts. Oh, sure. Yeah. Just kind of going off that, you know, I think it's worth, I mean, we, we, we've essentially said it, but maybe it's worth just pointing out specifically that, you know, he is, you know, he, he's, he's, uh, compulsive, right? He's, he's, he's playing over these chess moves at night. He is constantly pursuing this, you know, deeper truth, um, as to what's going on, despite many people saying to like, you know, trying to ward him off from that. Um, and not only does it complicate his life, but like he, I, I guess this is worth saying, like he solves the mystery, right? Like he, he, he wins, I guess. Um, but it doesn't make a difference. Like it didn't protect anybody. It didn't save anybody's relationships. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, it's, it's literally at the end of the movie, him drifting in the ocean in a boat called the point of view, um, with like, you know, nothing but like carnage around it. Like <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it just and, doesn't and solve if you watch long enough. Yeah. If you watch long enough, the boat actually just starts going in circles around the dead bodies. Right. I don't know, right. It's, right. It's very evocative. Yeah. Uh, it's also worth noting the reason why it started going in circles in the first place is because the heavily injured Mosby like tries to crank the wheel, but and then he falls down. So he starts it turning in circles, uh, and then he can't get back up to right its course again. So like mm-hmm. like everybody's saying, it's like it's not subtle, right? Like that's a very very clear visual metaphor. Um, it's also worth noting, sort of like to to what Aaron said, that um, a lot. And and maybe I I didn't follow the mystery perfectly right, but like to me a lot of the um the threads that Mosby ends up following to its conclusion they stem from sort of like tremendous unforced errors right and like um like spitefulness and pettiness among people right like the the very last one is maybe the best example which is that like when um Joey Ziegler goes to uh gets in the plane with his broken arm and he shoots at Mosby and, and goes out to try to save the, the Yucatan um, artifact. That's like a huge unforced error, right? Like he didn't have to go out there. Like, I don't think Mosby had him fingered at that point. I think that this was just his own sort of like call to the void. And sort of similarly, it's like uh, either Delhi was killed on accident or she was killed to cover up this conspiracy that she really didn't, 
wasn't going to be able to do anything about because Mosby wasn't there to hear her, right? Which again, that's maybe the wrong questions, right? But like, and and also even the stunt pilot in the first place, it's like, was that an accident that he died or did Quentin uh, murder him? out of like but it's like either way that was just sort of like the the thing that kicks the whole thing off which is finding the stunt pilot's body at the the bottom of that lake uh when delhi does um it's like that was either an accident or it was something completely unrelated to the eventual criminal conspiracy that mosby finds right and so it's like these are these are mysteries that are not even really tied together so much as they are just like the the natural and terrible consequences of people having their sort of like mutual um, obsessions and compulsions. Right. And I, I think that that compulsive behavior is a really good way to characterize that because like so much of this movie, especially in the first two acts, it involves not the mystery itself, but like the, the sort of greater and sadder and more obvious mystery of like, Hey, why did Mosby not just confront his wife? Why did he stalk her and create and build evidence of her infidelity toward him like she's one of his cases right like there's a ton of energy and argument spent on on that and it's very pointed that that's what we're focusing on right because like that is how we get into harry's character is like that is that is what he does and like that is what he wants to do uh like jason said it's like he he's compelled to do these self-destructive things like breaking into his um his wife's lover's house instead of just confronting her because that is like the those are the plot beats that he's following as a character. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I can't help but I, I, we, I know we've thrown out like half a dozen movie titles that this movie also makes us think about. But the one that um, I, I was thinking about a lot on this last rewatch was The Big Sleep, the uh, the Bogart and Bacall one, not the, the Bob Mitchum one that got remade later that year. But, you know, it's where the mystery sort of becomes so convoluted that it's not the point anymore. right. You know, and like that's that this the 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 yeah the conspiracy at the heart of night moves it yeah it seems like hardly the point and and that's almost the point the movie's making like at the end of the big sleep you know um you know Marlo solves the mystery and you're like ah what a you know what a twisted world we live in and this is like saying like yeah <laughs> yeah it is you know it really is and like it doesn't matter if he solves it like you know justice is not served it's just you know we we just maybe he's maybe he realizes you know, the, the, the depths of, uh, the, you know, the kind of pessimism that, that underscores the whole, whole film. Right. Well, and also like, as he, as he watches, um, Joey sink to the bottom of the ocean in this, uh, craft, he's, he's watching him in this, um, this like reflective surface at the bottom of the boat where you can see down into the water. And it's like a mirror, right? He's, he's literally watching himself drown. It's like, this is the guy that he had the most in common with. This is the guy who he had sort of like a parallel foil like relationship with who's sinking. Um, and then I, the only other point is that uh, like the whole, the mystery isn't really the point. The mystery is, is not solvable or it's, it's too banal to be solved is like a trope in neo-noir that, that became satirized itself, right? Like the big Lebowski, which is a play on the, big sleep is literally about that right it's about how like this mystery is too silly and stupid to solve or there's nobody around to solve it and even if they could what is solving it going to do right so like this is definitely like well entrenched within that um that idea for sure um there's one last point i wanted to bring up and it sort of runs throughout the movie so i'm hoping it's a rich vein uh the concept of remembering back before you were born um 
it is just part of a couple of throw almost throwaway lines, uh, but part of that uh, monologue that or sorry dialogue that uh, Harry was bringing up earlier, where uh, Mosby is going through chess moves and he says that he regrets, um, you know, the move that somebody didn't make, even though it happened before he was born. And Paula says that's no excuse. Uh, later on, not that much later, Deli asks uh, Mosby if he can remember, you know, anything before he was born, and he says, "I don't think I can remember back that far." To me, that is like, uh, you know, it's evoking that idea of like original sin and you know responsibility and you know the na- yourself and what you owe the world. Uh, to me, I wanted to or sorry, before you know we close out the episode, I wanted to get everybody's read on like what that does, how that uh, framing sort of maybe changes how you think of the narrative or maybe is it just building characters and like the uh you know what uh what we actually like have before us and what is you know worth worrying about what's worth uh i guess as uh harry just said what was like what can you really account for um and what's it worth being nostalgic was it worth regretting um what what did that do for y'all Yeah, I really like your original sin framing, Jason, because I think this is sort of a reframing of that, right? It's not, it's not original sin, except that we didn't, or we couldn't have done anything about it, but it is, it's like failed history. I'm going to make a Morrowind reference. So tune in Aaron, but like, these are characters living in the doomed world in which they have created, right? Right. It's like, this is a, this is a, um, their sort of regrets about the past and about history are, symbolic of the regrets of like an entire nation or an entire sort of like Western democracy, right? It's like, this is a, this is an America that's coming off of the Vietnam war. This is an America that is not what it thought it was and now has to exist with the realization that the, um, the world and history did not go the way that we wanted it to, or that we thought it should, because we are not the people we thought we were. Right. And like, there is a, it's like, what, where does that leave us? And like, according to this movie, in a lot of ways, all we can do is think about how it could have been otherwise, right? How like we deserve, or we could have had something else if only we hadn't been shaped by these things to the point where it's like, the fact that we were shaped by these things is, is no excuse because we are still enacting it. Right. Um, and so I, I think that the ultimate sort of like fatalist pessimism of this movie rests, not just in the characters, but in sort of like this, this understanding that the world, it was doomed before we started. And that's what, that is what is, uh, creating or creating a lot of the tension and the, um, self-destruction that these characters are following through to its logical conclusion is just that like, they can't help it because like, that's what we have left now. Damn, good shit. Um, I couldn't help but think I to get to your point, Jason. Before <laughs> while I start the sentence, um, I it struck me as like people are you know they're they're looking backwards, like further back beyond like they even started existing, if only to like consider what the end might look like or what it will look like. There's I can't remember the exact exchange, but there's <laughs> there's like a, a scene or a conversation that felt like I was listening to a, a fucking like LCD sound system album. Like there's I literally wrote down just like is this line in Dance Yourself Clean or something. <laughs> Um, it's just like, you know, it's the end of an era. It's true. And it's like, there, there are a lot of sort like a lot of peripheral things sort of setting that up. Um, like Mosby 
kind of softly shuts down his enterprise. You know, we're talking, you know, he's moving on from his marriage. We're all, you know, it's a, a changing of the guard. We're looking back at these old sort of like American mechanisms um, and like societal pillars and things. And, and like if, if setting those up, if only to like pull the rug out from under you and say, well, like, actually, no, we like, we can't have that because like Delhi can't live. You know, we can't have that because you're out on the water uh, riding a boat in a circle and like, <laughs> you thought you had your ducks in a row, but like, I, I, like it, it never, it's, it's never, it's literally never ending. Like you, <laughs> like the, the, the era doesn't end so much as it like just begins anew in a slightly different way. Um, talk about bleak, but yeah, I don't know. I, I guess your question, Jason sort of made me think of it from that way. Yeah. I really like that exchange with, uh, between, um, Delhi and Mosby, um, where he's, <laughs> Yeah, you know, we we we've mentioned a few times. It was just this this movie just has like a lot of I think killer dialogue. I mean, maybe maybe it's you know maybe it's a little fraught, maybe it's a little genre, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I it's kind I, of the I, point I, though, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But yeah, um, <laughs> you know, she asks him, you know, you know, do you think you could remember like you know your mother's heartbeat? Is that I think? Yeah, I think that's what, what she, she says. Asked. Yeah. And um, he says uh, something to the effect of like, you know, you're 16. Maybe this won't make a lot of sense to you, but I'm 40 and it doesn't get any better. <laughs> it's, such a, <laughs> it's fantastic. Such, such a great line. Yeah, I just love it. Well, in, in that through line of, of parentage is, is really important in the movie as well, right? Like Mosby never knew his parents. Um, that's something that's followed him around his entire life. Um, it's a big component of his relationship with his wife. Um, at one point after uh, Delhi is, is killed, he goes to her mom and says that I don't think she ever had a chance with you as a mom, uh, as a mother, that that is also him talking about himself in a lot of ways. Um, there's a great scene, a very weirdly funny sort of bleakly comic scene um, where Paula talks about how the first time somebody touched her breast, it was erect for half an hour. Um, Mosby being a man says he thinks that's kind of sweet. Uh, Paula being a woman and having a woman's perspective on the world perhaps says it's sad because like the idea that that was something worth looking forward to, or that that was something to hope for is sad to her, whereas Mosby still wants hope itself. Um, So we've talked long enough, but there's a very interesting sort of dialectic on like what women are allowed to uh, look forward to an experience in this movie compared to what men have, which is like another layer of bleakness. But like basically all of that is just to say that like these are characters who were doomed from the start, right? That's sort of the, the implication is that like Mosby was always going to end up in that boat circling the uh the answers so to speak because that's where that's where his whole life was was leading him and on some level he always knew it and he was just looking for other answers and asking the wrong questions right yeah yeah i think i think that circles the whole issue pretty tightly there's you know obviously that um the like how it how it frames treats and scripts its women is i think buried in that bleakness um a little bit uh, perhaps unfairly, I know there are many critical opinions about how, how that actually manifests in the movie. Uh, I think amid all the other stuff we're saying, I think it's not out of scope for like what the picture is saying about these tropes and about, you know, these kinds of people, but it's definitely there. So, um, let's see, I think we've reached what I would call time for our final segment of the show. And, uh, Matt, if we could ask you, uh, to join us in a rousing round of our, uh, of our theme song. Harry will help us introduce it here. Um, yes, but, thank uh, you. If you want to go hot on mic, that we can get started. 
It is the segment we call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Excellent. Wow. Wonderful. I didn't know we could get Harmony going, but we did. You did. Yes. Thank you, uh, gentlemen, so much for that, uh, that, dare I say, seductive introduction um, to today's segment, which I think will be fairly straight up. We're going to answer some questions that pertain to the cast and crew of the film we've discussed today in a little session I like to call Note Moves. Note Moves. Okay. Gentlemen. Okay. All right. I'm I'm clicking my, my Zencaster hand because that's clapping, but I only have one hand to do it with. That's great. Gotcha. I appreciate Approved. it. Hey, thanks, guys. Um, Jason just well, answered the question, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And it sounds like this. Click, 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 click. Beautiful. Um, I'm, maybe we can screen grab that image uh, so that the people out in the world, um, our avid followers, can see what that looks like. Um, but you know, we'll figure that out in post. What I'll, I'll do for the, the time being anyway is present... Each, uh, each of the subsequent five prompts, one at a time, um, five questions for guests, what can go wrong? Uh, after each statement, I will ask you all in reverse alphabetical by last name order to respond. I'm trying to get some different permutations of the orders here. So I think that puts us at Harry, Aaron, Jason, and then Matt. Um, so Matt gets the benefit of uh, seeing everybody else's foolish answers before deciding upon his uh, his own. Um, not to, you know, put my foot on the scale too much, um, but you'll get a... you'll a point for every correct answer or for every instance of having the closest to the correct answer and the person with the most points at the end wins as always trivia mafia rules do apply here so <clears throat> use your noodles not your googles with that uh i think we can go ahead and jump in uh, first up i'd like to highlight arthur penn a little bit I, his name came up at least once or twice during our conversation he directed night moves and he also directed bonnie and clyde um, during its initial theatrical run in 1967. Uh, I'd like to know, how much did Bonnie and Clyde gross when translated to $2021? So the kind of present-day inflation amount. Uh, and we're going to round to the nearest million. If it helps contextualize at all, I'm sure it won't matter. <laughs> um, as far as I can tell, it was only a domestic release. So for whatever that's worth. But yeah, we're, we're looking for an amount translated to $2021 that uh, that Bonnie and Clyde made during its initial theatrical run. And I'm starting with Harry. Cody, I'm so bad at these. You know how bad I am at these. Uh, I'm going to go, I and again, I, I'm absolutely sandbagging here, Uh because like I have no frame of reference, but I think I'm going to go with like $11 million. $11 million. All right. Aaron Grossman issue your guess, please. Uh, 80. Uh, I think it was, it was popular. Uh, 87 million. 87 mil in 2021 dollars says Aaron, uh, Jason, what's your guess? I'm also very bad at this. I'm going to say 115 million US dollars. Gotcha. And finally, Matt, bringing it on home. What you got for us? Yeah, I feel like I should absolutely know the answer to this because, you know, I've like read books about this movie and I have no <laughs> clue. I'm going to say 25 million. 25 million. So, um, uh, okay. So, reportedly, Bonnie and Clyde in 1967 dollars brought in 50 million 700,000 dollars. In twenty twenty, in twenty twenty one dollars, that comes to approximately, according to the calculator that I found online, the infa- inflation calculator, approximately four hundred and two million dollars. <laughs> what? what? Wow. wow, that's massive. Holy that's ass. It's uh, you know, kind of a big, big movie. 
Pauline yeah. Kale really did all that with her review. It's wild. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's amazing. Um, also amazing uh, because somebody here got a point, and it was Jason, I, I believe, whose guess was the closest. I am um, shocked. I, yeah, by putting that question first, you know, apologies. I know that's uh, none of our strong suit, uh, including mine. Um, I guess I sort of curved the ball after I caught it. But it's and, nice to have a little wild Well, you know, only the strong survive, they say. So, you know, put the feature of the fire right when you start the game. Ooh, okay. Jason's popping off maybe a little early. Getting, uh, nope, getting this is gusto. earned. This is not hubris. Okay. This is earned. Okay. I have earned All this. Right. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, he does, <laughs> he does usually win all the Cody's noties, so I guess it's it's uh, it's warranted. I don't, I don't think that's true. I th- I need to go back true. and he's actually like, won, plot he's out. He's never won like any of them. That was the joke I was making. Uh, okay. Long time oh. Ah, yikes. Um man and we have four more questions to go uh, it's it's getting it's getting florida hot in the figurative booth today um next up here for number two we can uh let's go ahead and shout out gene hackman uh one of the greats uh, i ask you i ask you fine folks here what is gene hackman's academy award winning percentage so to be explicit what percentage of oscars that hackman has been nominated for has he won that probably could have been grammatically structured better but uh, assuming there are no questions about the actual question, I will point to Harry first. What is Hackman's Academy Award winning percentage? I want to say 25%. 25% says Harry. What does Aaron say? Did he win another one other than French Connection? I don't know. Uh, I'm speaking I do on, know, I'm, but... I'm helping out. Oh, yeah. Well, um. <sighs> Uh, gonna go with twenty six percent. Twenty six percent, Jason. You know it's fair. I've done it to him many a time. Yeah, I know it's a good bit. I'm also bad at this, so I'm gonna guess forty seven percent. Forty seven percent says Jason and Matt. What do you think? Um, I am yeah, also terrible at these things. Uh, how about um ten percent? Ten percent. I like it. We're we're covering covering the spread here. Um. Gene Hackman has has uh, he's been nominated for a total of five Oscars, two for leading actor, three for supporting actor, and he has won two of those statues, which brings his winning percentage to forty percent. Jason Ooh. Daphnis, wow! Come on, with the fire, baby. A real dark moment for our podcast. It's a bit like a noir. <laughs> mm. That's uh, in noir. There are. I'm gonna. They're, they're I'm gonna be replaying this episode over and over again and thinking about all the answers <laughs> I should have given. <laughs> well, well, listen here. It's it, the majority of the the game is still ahead of us. We've got three more questions. We're at the the midway point question right now, um, and this is something that I think will be a little bit more in our wheelhouse. So you know, we can we can rest easy here. Uh, for number three, I wanted to briefly call out the 2002 film Stuart Little Two. Uh, because a few actors from Night Moves actually uh, performed in Stuart Little 2, funnily enough. Um, I ask you, fine folks here, which one of the following actors was not in the uh, mostly live-action live Stuart Little sequel? So I'm going to give you three options. I'll list the actor and then the character, just so you can match faces a little bit. And uh, what we want to know is which one of those folks was not in two, the famous movie 2002's Stuart Little 2. The options are A, Jennifer Warren, who played Paula in Night Moves, uh, B, James Woods, who portrayed Quentin in Night Moves, 
and C, Melanie Griffith, who portrayed Deli in Night Moves. So, um, you know, not an open-ended question. Um, you got a one in three chance. Uh, Harry, what do you think the answer is? Is Stuart Little too the one where he ends up, uh, a, a hawk chases him through Central Park in his little car? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I do okay. know, but... What do you mean? You, that's not related to the question. You can tell me the answer to that. You, hey, you never know. So, yeah. Oh, I see. Not Paula. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, I actually do know who played the Hawk now. And that actually, okay, I'm going with A, Cody. Okay, that's, okay, yep, we're going with A. Aaron? I I don't even, what what was B? B was James Uh, Woods. Yep, Jennifer Warren was A, James Woods was B, Melanie Griffith was C. I, f- I feel like James Woods would be in that movie back when that came out. Uh, I'm, you know what, though? I'll just I'll, uh, go with James Woods. All right. James Woods. B says Aaron. Jason, what do you think? Well, wait a minute. The question was which one's not in the movie, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. He's going against I've, his I've, instinct. I've chosen B. Yeah. I've gone against my instinct. He's, he's gone, gone against the grain a little so bit. Let me We're down the so far. <laughs> oh, you're doing the George Costanza hasn't thing. <laughs> My whole uh, life has been me doing the George Costanza thing. But yes, Jason. <laughs> I, I vote A, Jennifer Warren. I do not think that she was in Stuart Little too. Perfect. And finally, Matt, um, I know you're a big uh, little head, so I'm excited to, to hear what you think about this. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah I haven't seen Stuart Little 1 or 2. Um, but uh, Probably for I, the best. I, I'm going to go with Jennifer Warren because I think, I think she transitioned out of acting and into like – producing or writing or directing or something like that so that's, hmm. that's my guess that okay could be completely garbage i have no idea uh it could be garbage uh it's not because the correct answer is a jennifer warren um she, she dodged that bullet james woods apparently okay so first off the hawk the, right the, 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 the yeah the fact that the first person it was like, oh wait uh wasn't there a hawk in that movie it's like oh voiced by james woods uh james Woods apparently he voiced the character of the evil falcon that isn't scare, not in scare quotes, in actual quotes. Well, He's what was credited his character? as the evil, the evil Falcon is the his name character, of his character. But, but, well, oh, his character was, was just his character was just the Falcon, and then they got him to perform, and they're like, "Oh no, this guy, oh, this that's guy's James evil." Woods. I think evil I'm going to refer to James Wood as the evil Falcon. That's what <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, and, and then Melanie performance. Melanie Griffith Sorry, voiced uh, uh, Margolo the Bird. So shout outs to Margolo the Bird. Come on the pod or or don't. But um, so yeah, uh, Harry, Jason, and Matt all got a point there. Um, Aaron, bless him, um, covered part of the spread and got punished for it. That's hey, that's the that's the way. Can the we, can we remove, remove a point from him? Can be he? Can he be in the negatives? No, that's why I would mean, he do that? I, can I you remember back before you had points? because I've won oh, okay. so many times recently uh, that I've decided to give some of the smaller players a chance. To you win. don't. You don't decide that. Well, you're, what does winning get us anyway? If if Nightwing's wow. you know, I've been asking yeah. that a lot. Yeah. Damn, that's so true. <laughs> I mean, Aaron right now is just the meme of the guy who's crying underneath a smiling mask. I have easily won Cody's noties the most by quite a significant margin on this podcast. And look where my life is, buddy. All right. So the, te- the tears are running down your face and I can see them. <laughs> Listen, okay. Okay. Two things. Aren't really you getting quick. married um, in if- like a week? <laughs> that, I'm no, sorry, we're moving fine. on. Yes. I- 
Oh boy. Uh, the, the banter should be its own pod and I'm 100% serious on that. But two quick things. One, if anybody listening gets to this before me, our, our avid listeners out there, I know you're, you're plotting the, the winners of the noties on like a graph or a spreadsheet some, somewhere. If you wanted to share that, um, that could be really fascinating data to kind of back up these, these claims, uh, these substantial claims. The other part of it, um, Aaron talking about the, the smaller players here. I feel like I should clarify. I know we just spent a whole question talking about Stuart Little, but Stuart Little is not actually participating in the game. Um, so we don't need to refer to, to smaller players. That's maybe also probably pretty rude um, uh, to any potential guests. Um, shout out to Stuart Little if he does come on the pod. We've got two more questions to go here. Um, number four brings us uh, to the actor who is credited as just boy in night moves. Um, maybe even lowercase boy. I, I can't remember, but in any case, a boy, all the same. And that is Dennis Dugan, Dugan went on to direct a whole bunch of Adam Sandler movies. And what I ask you, this is an, another multiple choice question. Which one of the following Sandman features did Dugan not direct? I'm going to give you th- uh, three choices. A, Happy Gilmore. B, Mr. Deeds. C, Jack and Jill. Which one of those did Dugan not direct Harry? I'm going to go with B. Harry's going to go with B. Aaron is going to go with... I looked up Dugan. Uh, before this podcast, I was checking over doing my research for the uh, intro here and I clicked on this and I thought, ah, this person worked with Adam Sandler. I bet Cody will ask a question related to this guy. I bet he's going to ask how many films he directed that were nominated for Razzies because the answer is four. However, uh, that is not what you asked. Uh, I do not know the answer to this. I'm going to go B. Aaron's going to go with B. Uh, wow. Uh, that was such a beautiful glimpse into your that's, mind. That's why um, he's the champ of Cody's noties, honestly, though. I mean, you think think about the thought process that just went into that. I just show up to these. Yeah, uh, that's that's hey, true. Um, Jason, what's what's your guess going to be for this question as I kind of reevaluate my processes? Harry's guess was C. Or A. Uh, B has been the or only B. answer guess so far. Okay. Harry and Aaron both both said B. I'm going to go with C because I don't know. Okay. And Matt? Um, yeah, I'm going to be circling aimlessly in the water with B. <laughs> All right. Hey, um, latching on to, to the buoy of the B majority. Um, and hey, that ended up being the right move in this case. Dugan's influence covers a wide range of Adam Sandler works, but he did not direct B, Mr. Deeds. That was directed by one Stephen Brill, who also directed uh, Little Nicky and Hubie Halloween. So there we yeah. go. I, I did know um, I did know that he directed uh, Jack and Jill because he was nominated for the Razzie for Jack and Jill and one <laughs> other Adam Sandler film that nobody talks about that I can't remember the name of, but he was nominated for two uh, worst picture Razzies. He was Uncut Gems, right? Yeah. Uh, oh wow so dennis dugan or or, so was it dugan or or stephen brilden that's about to join the criterion collection with uh the the bringing in of uncut gems that's wow good for them that's amazing congratulations to to dugan as boy in night moves as boy um here comes the boy and finally we'll shift our focus to edward bins with our final question uh edward bins played Joey Ziegler in Night Moves. Uh, Ben's also, uh, he portrayed a juror in the 1957 film adaptation of 12 Angry Men. My question for you all is, which juror did Ben's portray, keeping in mind that there are 
12 jurors. We'll just say jurors 1 through 12 uh, to make that easier. I think we would probably go that route anyway. Um, and to, to add a little zest to this, I'm going to ask each of you to pick... Uh, you're, basically, you'll have the ability to, to issue two guesses, two different jurors, uh, and assign one of them two points and assign the other juror one point. The idea here then is you perhaps, um, I, I guess kind of going back to like the trivia mafia, um, thing where like you rank the answer, uh, the more points, the one that you're more sure of. So the idea here is you perhaps assign the juror you're more confident in, um, to the two point option. That way, if you get that right, you'll get two points instead of one point for the correct answer. Not a lot of zest, but you know, it's maybe an interesting way to end the game. This we'll is, see. So this is just like Moneyball. Wow. Uh, this is how we win. Um, Shout out to Uncut Gems. Uh, you can, so yeah, this question, you can score either two points, one point, or zero points. And I will now collect from y'all your two and one point juror selections. Again, jurors one through 12. Um, Harry, what, what are your two juror guesses? Um, the two point one first and then the one point one, if you, if you could. Ooh, sorry. Yeah, I just got to, uh, my uh, lips feel a little bit sore after all that zest of, on this question. Wow. Um, I'm going to give uh, the, my two-point answer to juror number four and my one-point answer to juror number six. All right. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Aaron, what are your juror guesses? Uh, am I allowed to put them both on one and get three points if it's correct? No. Two different jurors. No, no roulette rules here. <sighs> okay, I will do the two-point for juror number seven and the one-point for juror number uh, 11. All right. Uh, Jason, your two pickies. I'm going to go for one point. Uh, sorry, two points on juror number six and one point on juror number nine, baby. All righty. And Matt, take us home. <laughs> what are your picks? Sure. How about two points on juror number 10 and one point on juror number two? All righty. Um, thank you so much, gentlemen, for this rousing game. Uh, Edward Bins in 12 Angry Men portrays juror number six yes folks. wow so uh running down running down the the scores here uh, starting from the rear the rear working our way up top we've got aaron uh with one matt with two harry with three and jason bringing us back scoring two points on that final question uh leaves him with five for for the game um thanks for My playing God. those are the note moves yeah, I am really happy to have run rough shot over everybody else. Um, I don't even feel like I want to outro. I just want to like end the episode, but I will. Uh, I will go through that for you, Cody. Uh, thank you so much for again for another rousing edition of Cody's Noties. Um, and thank you very much to our special guest, uh, Matt Clark, for joining us again. Matt, give us that uh, that where people can find you on the way out here. Sure. Um... I'm um, at the MPLS Matt on Twitter and I'm MPLS Matt on Letterboxd. And then uh, do you guys mind if I throw a quick plug for a thing? Uh, let's, let's screen it first. Um, I don't want okay. any, uh, any obscene uh, objects or, or un, <laughs> unfunny bits. fans account is no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I started uh, film blogging again at kino-ventura.blogspot.com. It's great. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Hey, thank really, you. Really glad to hear you came back to it. So check out Matt's blog. Uh, check out his letterbox. He watches a lot more movies than most of us do. Uh, and rates and reviews, I think most of them. Do you have a policy around that or do you uh, just go with the flow? It, it's it's just the, the, the whim of uh, however I'm 
feeling about things. And if I the, think the I have Kino, worth, worth saying. Yeah. The Kino gods, uh, if they deem it, then so it shall be. Uh, but yeah, find Matt on Twitter, on Letterboxd and at his movie writing blog. It'll be linked in the show notes. Um, and uh, in the meantime, uh, you can find our podcast. It's called Try Love on Twitter at Try Love Podcast or wherever you get podcasts, maybe where you even got this one. Uh, you can find the trial on at trial on cinema and on trialon.org. That's where you can get tickets to movies that play at the Trilon and, you know, hang out there sometimes while it's safe in a safe way. Uh, we were invited to a wonderful special screening of um, Deep End by a volunteer, Kelly, uh, at the Trilon. It was a wonderful screening. We finally got to meet Matt in person and a lot of the other folks there. And boy, I really liked that movie too. Uh, but that's all to say, be at the Trilon sometimes. It's currently safe to be there. Um, I'm not sure how much longer this, <laughs> this advisement is going to last, but uh, when it is, hit it up. And if you can't, go online and find ways to support them there. Uh, I am always as I, as always am Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Yeah, I was uh, very bummed to have missed uh, meeting a bunch of people, including Matt in person. Sorry about that. I was uh, doing sports at the time as I am wanted to do, but um, yeah, love having Matt on the pod. Love the trial on, but uh, fuck you, James Woods. And I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Yeah, it's always great to have guests. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everybody. I've been Harry. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB, please. And every week that goes by is another week uh, that the Spring Breakers podcast is even closer. Time is almost upon us where I will uh, try and convince my uh, co-pod my pod co-host here, the spring breakers is a good movie. So, uh, catch that in a week, two weeks, something like that. But, uh, till then, um, yeah, stay safe, stay cool. Well, there's a big demand for dolphins. Lots of people want them. You'd be surprised. People buy them for their swimming pools. They think it's chic to have a dolphin for a pet. Like that craze for baby alligators in New York years back. When they got bored with them, they flushed them down the john. Now they got a sewage system swarming with blind albino shit-eating alligators.